Members of the TalkScript team were on site at NEJSConf 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a four-part series to help share the essence of NEJSConf 2019. This episode contains interviews with Adrian Tecca and Trent Willis around the theme of using art to personalize and elevate our experiences. Hi, we are back with another post-presentation interview on the Talkscript podcast. I'm Neil. I'm here with Eric. Hello. And we're joined by a special guest. Hi, I'm Adrienne Tucka, and I'm a Filipina software engineer who just did her first conference talk. Nice. (laughs) So right away, I think, at the beginning of your talk, you said one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I think that a lot of JavaScript developers don't acknowledge, which is, like, you were saying you came from C-sharp, and... I don't remember the way you phrased it, but like the JavaScript is very malleable. Yes, the thing for me that got me was that it was a paradigm agnostic, I mm. think is what I said. Yes. So in that sense, you know, there's not one way. You don't do JavaScript just object-oriented programming or just procedural or just function. There's all those ways you can do it, mm-hmm. and that's part of the difficulty of learning it. So, you know, for people like me who come from that object-oriented background, it's kind of hard because some things are similar, some things are not, so you don't know which parts actually translate over. Yeah, I mean, you would be surprised how many, like, advanced JavaScript developers Mm -hmm. are like, oh, no, you just write JavaScript like this. Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely different styles, different (laughs) methods, so yeah, you have all kinds of tutorials out there, and that just adds on to the confusion. Yeah, you you see someone set in their ways that are like, oh, well, you have to do... Right. Functions like this and write like this. Yes. And I've always been like, oh, no, it's the Wild West. You can, <laughs> if you want to add a new function to the object prototype, add a new function to the object prototype. Feel free. And, and I think that some people don't acknowledge that coming into JavaScript means that you're, you almost have too much rope to hang yourself, right? Like, Yeah, I agree with that. So I thought that was a cool, a cool thing that you said at the beginning of the talk that I don't hear people say very much. Yeah, I didn't go too much into it because I was worried about time, but the other part that adds on top of that is, you know, all the iterations of JavaScript, and specifically before ES 2015, mm-hmm. that's where all of the issues were exacerbated, and mm-hmm. that's why I can understand some of the seasoned developers or others who have worked with it, they're like, oh, JavaScript is terrible, why do you do this, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. So post that, that's where I think it's a little bit more stable, a little bit nicer to learn. <laughs> and people have even adopted habits based on right. pre-ES6. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the workarounds, all of this. Yeah. Totally get it. Yeah. And during your presentation, you gave some examples of some of the existing documentation that showed that while it's accurate, it can sometimes be a bit technical and less approachable. I just wanted to ask you about how you approach these technical topics when some of the existing documentation might be less approachable. Sure. So that's kind of the seed that started this entire talk was that when I was looking at these examples, you know, everything that's online, at least starting from the official docs, when you read that, especially if you're new or even if you're just referencing it again and you're still kind of intermediate, it doesn't really resonate with you. You can't immediately, like if you needed this function right now and you say, oh, how do I use this again? And you reference that. 
I would still just come out more confused and I would read that kind of documentation. And just like you said, it's technical, it's accurate, it's not wrong, but in order to put it to use, that's the kind of documentation or examples that I would need so that I can say, look at it, see it, and then maybe even understand it enough so that you can keep going and go through. Pretty much when I take technical concepts like that that are difficult for me, I just start doing find all, replace, you know, variables, put some emojis on there, put some donuts in there, mm -hmm. switch it around to things that I care about or are easier for me to understand. So other people do different examples where they, you know, may do real world examples or things that they're interested in. So I saw a couple examples where somebody was doing like aviation examples because that's what they liked. So it's more about finding something that you can resonate with that makes those concepts easier to understand because you already have that interest and engagement. So you would say like examples are kind of the, the pinnacle of documentation then like making them fun is maybe the second and then like making them fun for you would be the third i think it's a it's a mixture i mean there are diff there are people who can read the technical documentation and that works for them mm -hmm. so it, it really depends on the best way that you've learned that's just i think when you're very very first starting out with something new that's what i like to do i like to start with actual code examples because that's what i would be writing i don't need a definition i need the actual code how it would work mm -hmm. how you would structure it how it goes through and then yes uh, exactly the steps that you mentioned which is going through if there are any parts that are difficult kind of switch it out for things that i understand and then if it's really really difficult try to make it a little bit more fun and to, so to really get it down pin it down rather than just superficially understanding it you opened your talk with a few i guess common things that are said about javascript which is javascript is hard javascript is confusing and javascript is complicated so when you are talking to new JavaScript developers that have these preconceived notions that JavaScript is very difficult, it's really confusing, what resources or what advice would you provide to those new developers? So I try to see where the hesitation or where their opinions are coming from. So in the beginning, I said for most new coders, it's unfamiliarity. And anything you're unfamiliar with, you're going to be a little bit averse until you get, you, know, you don't like feeling stupid. You don't like not knowing what to do you know like all the the effort that it takes to really learn something but once you get past that hurdle then it becomes easier you become more open to you know going at it a little bit more to make sure you understand it so if it's that case i try to go through that with them and say look everything that you've had to start at some point you didn't know so you need to kind of go through it for the more seasoned developers the one who have used it or are more averse usually fall into the they've used it pre-ES 2015 so I try to see what specific issues that they've had with it what workarounds have they gone through what's the what's the hell that they have gone through and tried to say, well, you know, this is most likely fixed now past ES 2015. There's probably something that you can use now and then go through and teach them the, the newer features that work around or resolve some of the issues that they've faced before. And then that's kind of the way to bring them over and, and get them into to that. So it's really just finding where that opinion is coming from and then tackling it based on that. Yeah, I, I think saying like that MDN documentation isn't the only thing. Yes. I, I think some people don't realize that there are more fun ways of learning things, and then they encounter that, and it's like, what does a reduce method do? It uses a reducer function. You're like, that's not very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I think some people read that, and they think, like, this is how it's all going to be. Right. 
yeah, that's that's certainly how it was for me. And I appreciate that, you know, now everybody's, you know, you, you can find a Medium article on there. Mm-hmm. It's I'm not the only one that's doing this. So again, everyone does it in their own way. And it's just, it's like a good starting point. You know, that's the technical, you know, academic definition. This is the proper way to mm-hmm. set it up. But then to actually learn it, to get to that point, you can certainly use others. You know, there are visual explanations. There are people who did, you know, really nice animated GIFs of what's happening or GIFs, I don't know how you say it here. I say GIF. Uh, I say GIF, yes, I found another one. <laughs> okay, you know, there are people who do animated GIFs who do, to show what is happening as you execute each line, and that's very helpful. A combination of all those things, I think, make a very good, solid foundation for learning it. It's not just one, you don't just read one tutorial, do it, and then get it. You need to do it a different variety of things, do it consistently, and then it will really stick. Yeah. They're like they're games, and there's all sorts of, of really neat ways of learning now. Oh yeah, which is yeah. really exciting. Mm-hmm. Are there any topics that you're looking at right now that maybe you were either recently struggling with or foresee yourself struggling with in the future that you're kind of spending more time doing your own either independent research or you know kind of working through in a similar fashion to what we talked about before to expand your skill set going forward. Absolutely. I don't pretend to be an expert in this at all. There's something I do. I don't know if you heard. It's called Advent of Code. It's like this program that Eric Wassel created every December, and he does programming puzzles, one each day, and you get to earn gold stars for it. Oh, nice. I, I love that kind of stuff where you you know, earn stars, your leaderboards, all that stuff, but they're programming puzzles, and this is actually why I wanted to learn these array methods as well as other object methods, because his puzzles, they go they become more increasingly difficult as the day goes on. And these methods become imperative to solving them. You need to use map, you need to use filter, Mm. but then not just that, you need to use them in very, you know, clever ways Mm -hmm. to solve the puzzle. So that's kind of how I'm exercising my my knowledge of it a little bit and seeing if I can, you know, optimize it, refactor it. If I have a filter and a, a map in one, I try to make it in one single reduced call, those types of things. So just kind of expanding it to make sure I really, really understand it. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a good resource. Yeah. yeah. Are there any other kind of things that you've tackled in JavaScript outside of, you know, what we mentioned here that you think are particularly hard to explain or learn? Something I'm interested in that I, when I have the time, <laughs> I would love to get into is TensorFlow.js. So it's mm-hmm. the machine learning library that Google has put out and obviously JavaScript library for it. That's something I'd love to get into a little bit more. Something I'm also very interested in is augmented reality and trying to build my own applications of that. And I know there are maybe two or three JavaScript-based libraries that do that for mm-hmm. augmented reality. So Aside from that, that's what I would love to continue pursuing. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Is this a donut? <laughs> yes, donut not. or not? Donuts. Donut or not. <laughs> yep. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. yeah thank you. Okay, we are back with another TalkScript podcast. I'm your host for this little interview. I'm Neil Roberts. I'm here with... Trent Willis, I just gave a talk on generating art everywhere using web components and fast using web workers. Nice. Yeah, we're big fans of both web components and web workers, kind of at TalkScript and at SitePen. We like messing around with them, messing around with the technology. So I think the first thing that you started out with was talking about kind of old school forum signatures, which was kind of like a little bit of self-identity that I'd forgotten about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally resonate with that as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a huge part of my life for probably like three, four years. Mm -hmm. And then since then, it's 
no one talks about it anymore. Yeah, yeah. There's so much of that stuff that's kind of faded away. Like, I play board games, and there's, like, a board game site that kind of lets you do a little bit of that stuff where you put, like, some of your favorite games, but it does seem like maybe there should be more widespread, like, here's what I'm about in your signature sort of settings of different websites. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I'm still a part of some forums. They're much less active. Most of them don't do forum signatures. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I remember, you know, five more years ago, they would have, like, weekly signature of the week contest. People would be, like, doing this as, like, almost what felt like a full-time job, like putting out new work almost every mm-hmm. day. And Don't say any of that now. <laughs> my Twitter profile is basically, like, I try to fit as many of, like, my who I am, what I'm into sort of things and, into it as possible, yeah. and it's all this, like, coded language, and <laughs> yeah. it's really fun to do that. So, like, you kind of build on that to say, like, art, I guess, in general, is something that can make the user experience a lot, a lot richer and more human. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting, right, in that art for some people will really enhance the experience of being somewhere, and we see it all over the place in real-world settings, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even in this room that we're in, there are, like, art pieces and photographs hanging on the wall. Mm-hmm. But you don't really see much of that on the web, right? The only time you really see embellishment is when it, like, serves, like, an SEO purpose, basically. Yeah, yeah. We even, like, you know, the shirts that we wear and, and the different pins that we have on and stuff like that. Like, it's all, like, it's a way for us to express communities and express ourselves through art. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm super into music, usually obscure bands, like mm-hmm. hardcore punk bands and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I wear a lot of band shirts and they yeah. always have like these interesting designs and people come up and be like, be like, oh, what's that about? And I get to share a little bit of what I'm interested in. Usually it doesn't happen on the web. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your talk made me think, do you know who Zay Frank is? I do not. He's kind of an old school, one of the early daily vloggers. Okay. But he kind of, he created all these online communities and... He gave a talk at South by Southwest one year. You had the system where you would paint these flowers and give it names. And what ended up happening is that the users ended up co-opting it to where someone said, I had a bad day. Like, that was the name of their flower. And then someone else would say, like, I'm sorry, I drew you a flower. And then they would, like, color in their own flower. And so there was that sort of, like, co-opting of software to... I mean, like, the reason we think of it is because it had, like, the art component to it. But it was also just like this general like co-opting software to make something personal that wasn't necessarily intended to be personal. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it also kind of ties into another, I guess, fun software cliche, and that is that any piece of software will eventually become a chat application. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that is like things that where people are desperate to communicate who they are sometimes yeah. in very limited environments. A lot of the things that you were doing is is showing how we can use web components as a way to use a lot of repetitive functionality, right? Like to create this sort of generative art and web workers to get it off of the main thread. Yep. That was kind of the gist of your talk. But you said there were a few things that I thought were kind of more interesting and worth building on because they're more general, which is you talked about, at least in the, the tool that you created, I think it was this motion, repetition, and variation, right? Those were kind of the three initial things you hit on. Yeah. Those seem like kind of a good framework for doing this algorithmic art. Yeah, sure. I mean, so those principles come from, like, classic, like, artistic principles. You'd learn about them if you were an art major in college or probably even, like, if you took a high school art class. Mm -hmm. And they're ideas that have been shown over time to make things like nice to look at or help you communicate an idea, right? It doesn't always have to be to make something look nice. Sometimes you can use elements to make an image 
actually unattractive because you want to evoke <laughs> that certain feeling. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of people ever think about those ideas when we're designing art pieces on the web or even just designing user interfaces, right? Like consistency in a UI is essentially a form of repetition, right? We repeat things so that way users understand like, okay, this is what I should expect mm-hmm. to happen next. And then when something deviates from that pattern, it creates a sense of emphasis and they can call that out. And so I think studying those aspects from a different field can actually make us just generally better mm-hmm. developers. The thing that I think was interesting about that for me is is saying like, as programmers, we don't really need to understand a ton about art to make art ourselves. Like when we're looking at algorithmic art, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true as well. I mean, obviously, the deeper our understanding of art, the more we could mm-hmm. probably effectively communicate ideas <laughs> through it. Yeah. But yeah, getting started, like most people that create art on the internet are not professional artists. They're doing mm-hmm. it because they have an interest in it, or they want to find a way to be creative and express themselves. Or, for me, it's like just about having fun. Yeah. I am by no means a great artist, but I enjoy it, and it's a way for me to merge two of my favorite passions. Yeah. Know, making something that looks cool, as well as coding, which I love doing in my spare time. Yeah. The way that you presented it as well is it's not just like, bam, you have art. You know, you used animation frames, right, to actually see each step of that algorithmic drawing coming out. And that was... So that's really neat because it doesn't just expose the art that you're creating, it exposes how it created that art. Yeah, yeah, and obviously like you don't have to show every step of the process through like animations, mm-hmm. but given the medium that we have, and it's different from mediums like you know canvases where once you have an image, it's static, we can show that process, and I think that actually makes it more interesting and engaging for folks that want to look at it. Yeah, the thing that it makes me think of is it would be fun to take the approach of like trying to use... You know, you created kind of a more of a lightweight. The thing that you presented in this talk was kind of a set algorithm, but it makes me think that like that's something where if developers had an outlet to really get in there and really tinker with what algorithm is generating art, it's like something you could iterate on every day, <laughs> right? The problem is there's not a great spot to put it, but like it makes me feel like I could get a much better understanding of art just by tinkering with these few variables that you've put out. So one of the most interesting projects that kind of this brings to mind that I messed with when I was probably in middle school, maybe high school, was a program called Apophysis, mm-hmm. which was built on top of this paper called Fractal Flame Algorithm, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Basically, it was a way of combining different fractal algorithms together to generate really beautiful, really interesting images. And there were tons of parameters that you could tweak. Mm. And so, you know, you can go through and just mess, like, maybe change something by 0.1 here, negative 1 over here, and then you get a totally different image. Mm. And then you can just sit there and ask yourself, like, why does this look better <laughs> than the last one? Yeah. And kind of introspect on that. And then now with the web, like, there's, it's so easy to get feedback on stuff and be mm. like, be like ask yourself the question, why does this look good? What is it about this that resonates with me? And then mm. kind of develop an artistic understanding that way. Yeah, I really like, like, first principles art. Like, I don't, I don't know the right way to say it, but, like, I love the idea of, like, artistic curiosity. And that's, like, it seems like a variation of, of what you've shown here can do some of that. Like, I want to mess around with it and see what I can come up with. <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing that I tried to get at towards the end of my talk is, like, you know... If you're at all curious, like, go mess around with it. Like, it doesn't matter if what you create right off the bat is, like, just some squares on a page and doesn't look that great. Like, 
just taking that first step makes it a lot easier to then continue down that path. Yeah. I feel like I have a good sense. Like when I look at something, I feel like I can look at it and say like, oh, that's really pretty. But I don't feel like I am good at creating that myself. And like the thing that is interesting to me about algorithmic art is that I could accidentally create something beautiful. <laughs> and that's that kind of is enticing. Like I like the idea of accidentally creating something that I like and saying like, well, if I tweak this one little thing, then that will get even closer to what I'm what I'm going for. And then you like then you end up where you're where you're actually creating art, right? Where you're actually like composing and and trying to drive at something. Yeah. I mean to I guess draw it back to parallels of like general software development, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you first start building software, you don't really know what you're doing. No. But along the way as you learn like like oh this pattern wound up being really effective. I can mm-hmm. reuse that in the future. Yeah. And then you kind of build up that knowledge base and those patterns over time and then you can reuse them to create something very interesting. Yeah. And I mean you see that with traditional artists all the time. A lot of artists have really recognizable themes and motifs throughout mm-hmm. their art because they have found something that resonated with them mm-hmm. or worked well for their medium and then have just carried that forward. Yeah. They find easy sometimes, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of what I got out of it is just the idea that art doesn't have to be uh, something as purposeful as some people make it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't. Like, art... There's art everywhere. Some of it is very intentional and highbrow and inaccessible to your average person. But then there's a lot of people making art that just doing it because it's fun and they want it to be accessible and they want to bring joy and light and fun into people's lives. Yeah, I like that you talked about generative art being more than just like algorithmic, right? Like that nature does it, that it can be in all sorts of different places. Yeah, and honestly, prior to researching for this talk, I hadn't thought a whole lot about that. But then, like, you know, as I'm doing my research and one of the articles mentions chemical art, I was like, that's a really cool idea. Like, the fact that you could, like, mix organic substances and mm-hmm. generate art from it. Like, yep. that's that's a cool idea. Yeah. Probably a little too risky for me, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, just start with, like, dye. <laughs> yeah. Tie-dye t-shirts, right? Tie-dye t-shirts. Chemical art. <laughs> Okay, that was a lot lot of fun. I think you've given me a lot to think about based on your talk, so thanks for that. Cool, glad to hear it. Thanks for having me, of course.